Hello. Welcome to Texas True Crime. I am your host, Jessica, and I am so glad that you are here with me today. And thank you so much for being patient. I know I was late. We were, we spent two weeks in Colorado, y'all, and it was so nice. The scenery is beautiful. We went to Rocky Mountain National Park. If you have never been, I highly recommend it. The wildlife, the scenery, everything was beautiful. And on top of that, it was nice and cool as where now that I'm back home in Texas, it's 103 today. So it was also kind of like cheating on the heat in Texas and getting out for a little bit. But like I said, thank you for being patient. Everyone is good now. We have everyone taken care of, and I'm happy to be here to get to record this episode or do this episode with you guys because I have been working on it since we've been gone. But I want to tell you, obviously, we all like true crime. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here talking, would we? But I'm going to tell you what. Um, I had no idea when I started researching and reading about Anthony Allen Shore what I was getting myself into. So be ready. I don't usually do trigger warnings, mainly because it's true crime. And we all know it's, if you're listening to this, it's not going to be pleasant, but I'm kind of giving you a little warning. Just kind of prepare yourself because he's not nice to animals. He, his victims are not just young women. They're also girls. So kids and animals this week, y'all. So just kind of be prepared. And I mean, one of the documentaries I watched about him was titled Anthony Allen Shore, the killer that disgusted law enforcement. I mean, so if that doesn't say something, I don't know what does. Um, and, and not just children that he didn't know. He drugged and molested his own daughters too. So he's just a horrible excuse for a human being, period. He, but you know what the sad thing is? He was an incredibly smart person and talented person. And it's kind of sad that it's not kind of, it's real sad. What am I talking about? It's sad that, you know, if he had put those talents to good use, who knows what he could have done with them. Instead, he used those talents to elude law enforcement for over 10 years, even though they worked diligently from his first murder till they finally caught him. This is not going to be one of those cases where you go, why weren't they doing anything? Law enforcement was doing everything in their power to figure out who was doing these awful things. But he wasn't leaving a lot of evidence. And it was in the 80s and early 90s when DNA was just, you know, obviously the 80s, they weren't doing any testing. And in the early 90s when things were not up to speed yet. So it took a while because he wasn't leaving much evidence behind. It took until DNA caught up for them to catch him. So why don't we start at the beginning and talk about where Anthony Allen Shore was born, who his parents were, that kind of thing. All right. 
So Anthony Allen Shore or Tony from now on, we'll call him Tony because that's how, what his family called him was born on June 25th, 1962 at Ellsworth Air Force Base in Rapid City, South Dakota. He also had two younger sisters, Regina and Laurel. Now, Tony likes to claim that after he was born, his parents didn't want any other kids. They only wanted him, but they accidentally had Regina and Laurel too. But you'll learn as we, as you learn more about Tony Shore that he loves to lie. In fact, one detective that interviewed him even said that he didn't know if Tony knew the difference between when he was telling the truth and lying. He loves to lie and he loves to present himself as the best, smartest, most grandiose person in the room, in the area, anywhere. So of course, by claiming that he was the only child his parents wanted, there you go, one more way, right? Uh, his mother, Deanna, worked as a waitress and as a seamstress on the side. His father, Robert Shore, worked on computers. And at this time, their computers were very new. There weren't a lot of people who knew anything about computers. So he was in high demand and had some really high profile jobs. And because of this, the family moved a lot. And on top of that, besides the moving, Robert Shore was frequently gone from home a lot. So when Tony was three, they made their first move, which started the cycle of living in one place for a short period of time, a year or two, and then picking up and moving again to follow Robert's job and the demands of people needing him to come wherever his work was needed. And Tony said that pretty soon he figured out there wasn't much point in making friends because they were just going to move. And in his own words, he said he had a bad attitude. Early on, Tony started showing disturbing personality traits. When he was five, the next door neighbors had a very cute little kitten and Tony loved the neighbor's kitten and he wanted to keep the kitten for himself. But his sister told him that it wasn't right for him to keep it. It didn't belong to him. So instead of taking it back to the neighbors, he carried the kitten into the house went into the kitchen, got a large kitchen knife, brought it back outside, and he stabbed it and killed it instead. Now, Tony's mother, Deanna, was shocked, mortified, didn't know what to do about this very unusual behavior for a five-year-old. So she called their priest and asked him to please come talk with Tony about this. So the priest came over and he spoke with Tony and explained to him why that was wrong and why he shouldn't do this, but it didn't help. Not long after that, not long after the kitten incident, he stabbed his sister Regina in the head with a screwdriver. And Regina said, I still do not know to this day why he did it. It wasn't provoked. He just did it. Just stabbed her. I mean, these are not things you do. Uh, siblings fight, but you don't try to stab each other in the head with a screwdriver. Now, luckily, it did not cause any major damage, and she is okay. Another thing Tony liked to do when they were kids in element elementary school aged 
was not that this would be good behavior any age, but elementary school. This is, he was young. He would like to go on bicycle rides with his sister, Regina. He and Regina were close in age. Laurel was six years younger than Tony. And he even said that his childhood, he remembers spending time with Regina. But Laurel was so much younger, he didn't do as much with her. So he and Regina liked to take bicycle rides. And what Tony would do is he would make Regina go knock on doors, on the neighbor's doors, where he knew girls around their age lived. And he would tell Regina to get them to come outside. And once Regina got the girls outside, Tony would get them and try to grope them and kiss them. And she said she hated this, but she was also scared of her brother. And she was scared to tell him no for fear of what his reaction might be. Well, one day the house Tony picked was her teacher's house. And she went up, she knocked on the door. She talked to her teacher and to her teacher's daughter, but she knew if, <clears throat> excuse me, if they did something to her teacher's daughter, then there was going to be repercussions at school. And Regina finally stood her ground and told him no, that she loved school and she was not going to get in trouble by helping him do something to his to her teacher's daughter. And so then she finally put a stop to it like that. She all, But Regina did say that it was interesting that even at that age, Tony had a type. All the girls were very small framed. They were thin and they had long, really pretty hair. And you'll find out as we go along that that's Tony's type. Small, shy, long, thick hair, women that he could overpower. Now, Tony claimed that his mother beat him and that his parents always screamed and yelled at each other and that they fought all the time. He also claimed that his mother and father were always having affairs behind each other's backs. He also claimed his mother molested him when he was 13. But Tony's sisters all say that that is not true. People in their family, people who knew them say that that's not true, that their life was pretty normal and or ordinary until their parents got divorced when Tony was 14. And they said, even then, it wasn't a big dramatic divorce. They just decided not to be married anymore. So, and, and I will say, I looked into a lot, looked for some other people, you know, corroborating Tony's side of things. But there doesn't seem to, the only person who seems to say that life was so terrible in the Shore household was Tony. No one else. Now, and both sisters said that their mother's idea of discipline, there was no physical discipline involved in their household. That instead what she liked to do was sit them both down, talk to them or all of them down, talk to them about what they did wrong, and then tell them how to correct it and what the better choice in behavior would be. So it sounds like Deanna Shore was actually a really great mom. Robert Shore admittedly said he was very absent because of his job, that he focused on it a lot, but it sounds like that was his biggest fault was that he was just absent. So remember I said 
that Tony loved to lie and make up stories to make him sound better than he was about everything across the board. But one thing that was completely true about Tony Shore was that he was a very talented musician. In fact, some things that some of the resources that I used even said he was a child prodigy. He first became interested in music at the age of three, and it became very obvious very quickly that he had a real talent. His first instrument was a guitar that his dad bought for him for $5, and he taught himself to play it easily. No formal lessons, just picking it up, figuring out himself. So when his parents saw that he had this aptitude for music, his mother enrolled him in piano lessons, and he was very good at playing the piano also. But he didn't like the piano teacher making him read the sheet music. He wanted to play things his own way and how he thought it sounded better. And so at his first recital, he refused to play the Battle Hymn of the Republic the way it was written. Instead, without the teacher's permission, when he got up there when it was his turn, he changed it all up and played it the way he thought it should sound. And so this was one of the first times where his aversion to authority and his need for control really started to show. Tony Shore could play pretty much any instrument that he picked up. He would pick it up and fool around, mess with it, and figure out how to play it himself. And like I said, that is true. When his parents divorced, he was 14 and he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in Irvine, California. Well, he joined the band, the high school band, and while he was in the band, he played the trombone. And he also started his own band on the side, which that was something that throughout his life, he kind of always had a band with friends or acquaintances. I don't really know if Tony Shore really ever had friends or if it was more people that he thought could help him out. But people did say that he was charming and he was very likable. And so on the outside, he did appear to be a great person. So, you know, maybe, but I don't know if anybody was really a true friend to Tony or if it was just someone that he thought was a means to an end. Well, once Tony got to California, he began to get into trouble. He claims that he helped his friends kill a homeless man, but that's really never been proven, but it's something that he claimed. Nevertheless, he does say that he got into drugs. He was, he didn't really drink, but he got into drugs. He was staying out. He wasn't going to school and that he didn't like school. So when he was a junior in high school, he dropped out and just started doing odd jobs to try to make ends meet. In 1983, Tony Shore moved to Houston, Texas. He was 21 years old and he was hoping that he could get his dad to pay for his college. Now, Tony, at one point, they moved a lot, like I said, in his childhood, Georgia, Oklahoma, California, but Texas was one place he had lived for a while. And Robert Shore was back in Texas working for NASA. So Tony thought maybe if he'd go back to Texas, go back to Houston, that he could get his dad to pay for some college. Well, while he was in Houston, he met Gina Worley. She was shy and she was quiet, slim build, long, dark hair, and they lived in the same apartment complex. 
Well, one day she was checking her mail and he came out and introduced himself to her. And he said, hi, I'm Tony Shore and I'm the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Would you please go out with me tonight? Well, she said he was so charming and so nice and he seemed so open and genuine that she said yes. Well, they had a whirlwind romance and they got married in a very small ceremony on March 25th, 1984. And Gina will even say that she was young and naive and there were signs, but she, she, he was so charming and so charismatic that she overlooked them all. Tony began working at Southwestern Bell and Gina worked for Whataburger as an administrative assistant and delivered newspapers part-time to also help make ends meet. That's something else you're going to see. Tony has a pattern. He'll have a job, but he really relies on the women in his life to do all the hard work because, you know, in his mind, he is too important for these things. One month after they were married, Gina became pregnant with their first daughter, Amber, and she was born on April 9th, 1984. Now, Gina said that really, she and Tony got along really well and they rarely argued. But after their first daughter was born, he began criticizing her weight. He told her she was fat, or he made up a word, larguous, even though she only weighed 110 pounds. Their second daughter, Tiffany, was born June 5th, 1985, so just a year later. And Tony, Tony had gotten a promotion at Southwestern Bell, so they were making better money. Gina continued to work at Whataburger, but she gave up her paper route. And so when she got home at night, she focused on their two young daughters. But that did not suit Tony at all. He was not happy about that because he wanted Gina's attention for himself. Now, he didn't like to take care of the girls. Gina said he never changed a diaper. He never did any of the hard dad stuff. He didn't feed anyone. He didn't do anything. He just liked to do fun things. And so it really irked him that, you know, she had to take care of these kids. Let's face it. We all, if you're a parent, you know, or if you have any good sense, you know, kids take up a lot of your time, but Tony was jealous of the girls. Now, not long after Tiffany was born, Gina was still recovering, but Tony wanting attention, wanted to have sex, but she said, no, I'm, I haven't even been cleared by the doctor yet. I'm, I'm not even feeling well yet. Well, this made him mad. And instead of being a nice, caring husband, he forced himself on her. He raped her. And she said afterward that their relationship became very rocky. I mean, understandably. After Tiffany's birth, Gina and Tony realized that there was something different about their older daughter, Amber. And so Gina really started researching what could be going on with Amber. She didn't like to be held. When she was held, she would become very rigid. She didn't really cry much. And so she didn't respond to things the same way most young children, toddlers did. Well, Amber was diagnosed as autistic. Now, once Amber was diagnosed as autistic, Tony didn't want anything to do with her. He only focused on Tiffany. And Gina said in everything I read that any one, anything that seemed less than in Tony's eyes was just not acceptable to him. And because 
Amber did require a lot of attention and she would have outbursts as she was growing up and learning. He just kind of shunned her and Tiffany became his sole uh, focus. She was his baby, his pretty one, the one that he wanted to teach music to and do arts and crafts with. Now, one thing Tony did like to do, and he did this for Amber too. Remember, he likes to be the fun parent. He liked to buy the girls expensive things. So that was how he thought parenting should be. Be fun, buy nice gifts, and let Gina do all the hard work. Now, during this time, Tony started a new band, and he became obsessed with his new band called St. Vitus Dance. He practiced obsessively, and he would accept nothing less than perfection. It was constant. He played piano for them day and night, day and night, day and night. So on the outside, Tony's pretending to be a great family man. Everyone in their neighborhood at his job, they think, you know, he's this wonderful family man. He looked great. He looked like he was a great dad, a great husband. Most people who met him thought he was funny and charming. But there was a lot more going on behind the scenes than anyone knew including his wife, Gina. In 1991, Maria Carmen de la Strada moved with her father, brother, and two cousins to Houston from Cuernavaca, Mexico. Her family called her Carmen. She was quiet and shy. She was 21 years old, and she was five foot one and only weighed 104 pounds. And she looked much younger than her age. She had long, dark hair that hung down all the way to her waist and large, dark, almond-shaped eyes. She was a beauty. Now, Carmen worked very hard to help her family make a better life for herself and for them. She, In fact, she was such a hard worker, she had two jobs. During the day, she babysat for a little boy in her neighborhood. And then at night, she went, she worked on a cleaning crew for an office building. The men in her family were very protective of her because they did live in a big city that she was unfamiliar with. Carmen didn't have much time for a social life, but she did have one best friend, and through that best friend, she met a very nice young man. Now, Carmen was very religious, and she let this her boyfriend know that there would be no premarital sex, that she was very devout in her religion, and you know, they began, the man was very, the young man was very understanding of her religious views and they continued to date and eventually they started talking about marriage. On April 16th, 1992, two men drove into the Dairy Queen parking lot at 10.30 a.m. Now, if you're not familiar with Dairy Queen, it's a fast food restaurant that, you know, typical fast food restaurant. So if you're not familiar, that's what Dairy Queen is. They were taking an early lunch break and the men placed their order and were pulling around through the drive-thru when they saw a woman's naked body lying against the back wall. And instead of stopping to see if they could help her, they just kept on driving by because they were in complete shock. Well, five minutes later, the Mrs. Beard's delivery truck was pulling up to make their delivery for the day. The delivery driver had to wait for the car in front of him to pull through the drive-thru, which was the men in the car in shock so that he could get to the back door to make his bread delivery. 
Well, as soon as the other car drove by, the driver looked into his side mirror and he noticed there was something blocking the driveway. So he got out of his truck to go see what it was. And he really originally thought that it was a bag of trash or something like that. But when he got closer, he realized that it was the body of a young woman. Well, the driver banged on the back door of the restaurant and yelled, call the police. Sergeant Hal Kennedy and his partner, Sergeant Rick Massey, received the call about the body in the Dairy Queen parking lot. Now, these two men were veterans of the homicide division of Houston PD. So these were not people new to the scene. They knew what to do. They knew how to process the scene. When they got there, the girl's body was lying face down. Her right arm was tucked under her right hip and her left arm was stretched up over her head. Her legs had been crossed at the ankles. Her shirt had been pushed up to the middle of her back and her bra had been cut down the middle in the front. The girl's underwear were torn and she had also been wearing pantyhose. So her underwear and her pantyhose were all rolled down mixed together mid-thigh. Sergeant Kennedy determined that she had been killed elsewhere and then dumped in the parking lot. And he believed that the killer had pulled her out from the driver's side door based on the way her body was laying. He asked the medical examiner to please turn her over and the front right side of the girl's body was covered in asphalt from the parking lot. As he began to look at her body, he noticed that it looked like she had human bite marks on her left breast. She also had a cut on the right side of her mouth that was half an inch long. Sergeant Kennedy was very careful to make sure that any and all evidence found on her body was properly recovered for any possible DNA specimen that they could get and that she was properly checked for sexual assault. He also made sure that they clipped her fingernails and preserved them so that if there was any DNA that they could test where she had scratched her killer, they would have it. But like I said, it was the early 90s and DNA testing was pretty limited at this time. So Sergeant Kennedy noticed that there was a very thin white cotton rope that had been tied around her throat. When he lifted her hair up in the back, he saw that the rope had been twisted tightly around her throat and then knotted with several square knots. This was not something done quickly or in haste, this had done been done purposefully. And the, then wrapped in her hair and attached to the rope was a small wooden dowel, about two inches long. The small stick looked like it had been used to tighten the cord and to twist it around her neck. Now, Sergeant Kennedy had grown up in a ranching area with horses. And he said he had seen something like this used on horses before, and it was called a twitch. Ranchers would use this device to keep horses in line. But instead of around the neck, the rope would be placed in the horse's mouth, and then the wooden piece would be slipped around the ends of a rope so that the rancher could twist and tighten it to enable the rancher to move the horse anywhere they wanted. But by placing the, this twitch on Carmen's throat, the killer had her at his complete mercy. There was no way she could fight back.
The detectives spent the next few hours interviewing all of the Dairy Queen employees. No one knew the girl or had seen anything that morning. There were no cameras in the parking lot, but employees did notice a man in a tan Pontiac drive through the drive-thru about the time the body would have been left. The man was a white male in his late 30s or early 40s. He had short, light brown hair and a mustache. He had on dark blue work pants and a short sleeve button-down white shirt. He was medium weight and height. The area around the Dairy Queen was predominantly Hispanic, and most people who lived in the area only spoke Spanish. So the detectives called in Spanish-speaking officers to help them canvass the area and talk with the people in the neighborhood. But unfortunately, they didn't turn up any useful information. Now, while they were working in the parking lot, an older man approached Sergeant Kennedy in the Dairy Queen parking lot. He was very upset and he was holding several pictures of a young lady in his hand. He had heard about the young woman that had been found and he was concerned because his daughter had not come home from work that night and that was very unlike her. The man handed his, his pictures to Sergeant Kennedy and when Kennedy looked at the pictures, he knew immediately that he was looking at he was looking at the father or speaking with the father of the young lady they had found in the Dairy Queen parking lot. So Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Aurelio Espinola did Carmen's autopsy. He confirmed what the detectives had suspected when her body was discovered. Carmen had been sexually assaulted and the cause of death was asphyxia due to ligature strangulation, meaning that just as they had thought, the rope and the stick had been used to strangle Carmen. Sergeant Kennedy asked Sergeant Jim Ramsey to help out with the investigation into Carmen's death. He wanted Ramsey to take Carmen's daily route to work so that he could question her neighbors and the people along her route. So like I said, this is not a case of the police being delinquent in their duties. They worked their tails off. They did everything they possibly could to try to find out some information. And there just wasn't really anything available to them. So Sergeant Ramsey knocked on several hundred doors on Com Carmen's route to work, but no one had seen anything. They also have flyers created with Carmen's picture and information in English and in Spanish written on them and posted all over the area where Carmen's body was found and in her neighborhood. And they also made sure to contact the Spanish speaking media outlets in Houston to make sure that they reported on her murder also. The police took all the tips they received seriously and checked each one out, but the tips led them nowhere each time. Sergeant Kennedy also asked Sergeant Bill Dunn from the sex crimes unit for help. They looked at other cases to see if maybe they could find something that was similar that would give them a lead to who could have done this to Carmen, but nothing. One thing that was helpful was that Sergeant Dunn could call the suspects in and have them give a DNA sample. So at least they could rule out people as they looked. Of course, no one matched. Houston PD also contacted Houston Crime Stoppers and asked for their help. But despite all of these efforts, they turned up with nothing and the case eventually went cold. Gina Shore had no clue what her husband was up to. He was supposedly at work. She thought he was. 
And she had no idea that her husband didn't want to be married to her anymore. So on March 25th, 1993, it was their 10th wedding anniversary. Tony came home. He took her out for a nice dinner. Then they went to an IMAX movie. When they got home, Tony had champagne chilling. He poured two glasses of champagne and he got down on one knee and he looked her in the face and he told her he'd been having an affair for months and that he was leaving. Gina Worley said she was in shock. She was speechless. She couldn't believe they just had this nice romantic evening and this was what he was telling her. As soon as he told her the news, he got up and he walked out the door. Well, remember all that practicing that he'd been doing with his band? Tony had been having an affair all this time with the lead singer of the band, Liz Martin. And then, to add insult to injury, she found out that he wasn't just sleeping with Liz behind her back. There had been multiple women all along. Well, as soon as Tony moved out, the very next morning, Gina woke up to try to pay the rent, to try to pay all their bills. He had already drained all of their bank accounts. He'd taken everything. Now, this wasn't just Tony's. Remember, it was a joint bank account. He took all their money. He took Gina's money. He took his money, cleaned everything out. And when she called him and said, what are you doing? I need to pay the bills. The girls and I still live here. She said, no remorse, no care, cold. He just said, I'm not living there. So I refuse to pay for any of that. Now, it didn't take long for... Tony and Liz's relationship to sour. In fact, remember, Tony liked to tell all about himself and he liked to brag to his ex-wife after they were exes all about all the stuff he'd been doing behind her back. He loved to tell her all about his sexual exploits that he'd been up to. And he also liked to talk about him and Liz. Gina really felt like this was just more of Tony's after she you know, the more she got to see the other side of Tony, his, the sadistic side of his personality, because why not rub it into your ex-wife who now really can't do anything about it? All the stuff you were doing behind her back. Well, he also though, didn't mind telling her that as soon as Liz moved in with him, he paid off all her debts and bought her all these nice things. And it didn't take long she dumped him. So, you know, that's karma coming back around. But it even sounds like, you know, Liz was probably using him too. She got what she needed and then she was out. Now, because she had no money, Gina had to move back in with her parents and then she lost her job. So, Tony gained custody of their two daughters. At this time, Amber and Tiffany were eight and seven. He also didn't care that because they could no longer live in their apartment, the girls also had to, be up, had to be uprooted from their schools. But he could care less because all he was worried about was moving in with his new girlfriend and her two sons and doing what suited him best. So he uprooted the girls, took them out of their school, enrolled them in a new school, 
and moved them in with Liz and her sons. Now, to help him gain custody of the girls, and of course, because he always has to be the best person, he started spreading rumors about Gina. He claimed that Gina had a drinking problem and that she didn't adequately take care of the girls anyway. Now, Tony's sister, Regina, it's a little confusing because he's got a sister, Regina, a wife, Gina, but Tony's sister, Regina, backed him up on this, even though his ex-wife, Gina, vehemently denied her drinking problem. She said, she goes, I provided all the day-to-day care of the girls. I took them to school. I cooked all the meals. I took them to all their after-school activities and I picked them up. I helped them with homework. She said, I didn't have time to, to even have a drink, let alone be drunk all the time. But later on, Gina discovered that Tony had been drugging her throughout their whole marriage. He would slip her a hypnol in Gina's drinks and then she would black out. And she thinks that's why people believed his lie that she was drunk all the time because in the evening she probably was slurring her words and she wasn't aware of these things. Now she said she, and remember, Gina said she was naive. And I think that's how he was so easily able to manipulate her and do these things to her. Because she did say that one time she woke up and she was in bed with her daughter, Amber. And she said, Amber was one of those, those of you that have kids, you know how this is. Some kids are crazy sleepers. They roll around all night. They do like gymnastics in their bed. She said, Amber was like this. You might wake up and her toe might be in your nose. She was not someone that you were going to sleep peacefully with. But she woke up. She was in bed with Amber. Amber had her legs thrown across her. And she said, how did I even get here? And Amber said, don't you remember, Mom? You came and laid down by me. So she was out of it a lot and didn't even realize it. But at the same time, she never suspected anything. Well, of course... If Gina's out of it, his daughters are asleep, that meant Tony was able to do whatever he wanted when he wanted. And Gina never suspected that while she was out cold and his kids were sleeping, he was out having affairs, sleeping around, or brutally murdering young women and girls. And that's where we're going to stop today. I have a lot more to tell you about Tony Shore. So I hate to leave you hanging, but I promise that we'll be back on track and you will have the next episode on Sunday like usual. Thank you for listening today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts, ideas for other episodes. I've gotten some great suggestions lately. So thank you all for your input. Let me know if there would be other things you would want to talk about. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime, or you can also email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and 
tell a friend. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend about it. Help spread the word. That helps more than anything. Thank you to li- for listening today, and I will see you in just a few days. Bye.